Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. I'm the founder of the Miller Law Group and director at the Center for Understanding and Conflict. And I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And my guest today is Lily Vasilev. Uh, Lily is a fee-only certified financial planner, master analyst in financial forensics, specializing in matrimonial litigation, certified divorce financial analyst and president of Wealth Protection Management based in Greenwich, Connecticut. She's a trained mediator, collaborative financial specialist, and qualified litigation expert. Lily Vasiloff, welcome to Divorce Dialogues. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Catherine. My great excitement, and I'm happy to be here. So, you know, what we're planning on talking about today is mistakes that people make in high net worth divorces. And before we just jump right into that topic, I I mean, I think that a lot of people who are listening might be thinking, well, you know, if you have a high net worth, you know, and you're getting divorced, you know, that's a great problem to have. But it's not as simple as all that. And it's not, I think that people with high net worths have a lot of the same issues that other people do. And there are some things that can get a little bit tricky. Is that right? I totally agree with you, and it's not just the question of money, as you well know. It's everything that surrounds the money questions. But when you have a high net worth couple, oftentimes that wealth is in itself complicated, and it might not be liquid. It might have a whole lot of restrictions on it, and it might be supporting a lifestyle that literally doesn't result in savings. And when you divide one household into two, you're in a position of where you really need to figure out whether or not you have sufficient assets and sufficient cash flow to meet critical and overhead administrative needs of your lifestyle. You know, it's really interesting because I think what you're saying is that some people might just think, well, you know what, it's a lot. It's a lot of money. So it's got to be enough, right? And even sometimes professionals, lawyers, financial professionals might think in that very simplistic way. But I think what you're suggesting, Lily, is that you really need to take a pretty hard look at what the expenses are, what the assets are, how they're invested, and and whether or not they're going to really support the lifestyle over the term of the owner's life. Is that right? I think it's perfect. You just said it absolutely perfectly. I, I will give you an easy example. I had a client who, you know, was very well off as a couple, and they went to divorce, and I was looking at, you know, maybe the middle of the divorce negotiations, and it seemed to me that it was clear as day that this person was not going to be able to support their lifestyle if they continued to maintain the house and everything that went along with it, given what the alimony or the maintenance amounts were, and yet this house was probably, I would say, 70% of the assets, and certainly 100% of all the cash flow, and her attorney had not sufficiently counseled her on the planning aspect of it. And she literally was shocked. She said, well, how can this be? And and that's what we dive into. I mean, that's the deep dive. You're looking at the relationship between cash flow, what the needs are. You're looking at what's in the bank. You're looking at how it's invested, the character of the assets, and even more importantly, the tax 
implications if you need to tap into those assets post-divorce. So are you saying that one of the mistakes that you could make would be just assuming that because it's a lot, it's going to last for the rest of your life? I think that is a very easy-to-make mistake. And why is that? Because people often who have tremendous wealth, usually there is one person, one spouse, by far more experienced and knowledgeable in the finances. And if we're working with the lesser knowledgeable spouse, that spouse may think, oh, I've got all this money in the bank. It's going to last forever. I don't want to take any risk. I'm afraid of investing it. I don't know how to invest it. I don't trust people. And they are receiving large sums of funds. And those funds sit there and are either uninvested, which presents an opportunity loss, you know, for being invested and growth and appreciation, or they have a lack of experience with finances and they end up investing in ways that are perhaps much more risky than they should be. And sometimes you even have a sense of overconfidence in what they could invest in and they think of themselves maybe as a great, you know, day trader having Wall Street experience goes to the other kind of a spouse and they lose it all. And I've seen this so often where you know, sort of at both ends of the spectrum. You've got one person who's inexperienced. You've got the other person who's perhaps overconfident and and maybe a little bit too eager to take on too much risk. And just having a lot of cash doesn't mean it's going to last forever. It needs to be prudently, wisely managed and allocated to have the lifestyle that you hope for. So, Lily Vasilov, I think what you're saying is you're really looking for the Goldilocks approach here, right? You don't want to take <laughs> a bunch of yeah. cash and just put it in your checking account because it's essentially hiding it in the mattress, right? I'm yep. just going to have, you know, maybe that'll work and maybe it won't. Maybe there's enough for you to just write out of your checkbook, you know, against that cash for the rest of your life, but the money's not going to do anything for you then other than pay the bills. That's one thing. That's a risk. Uh, it might feel like that's the super safest thing to do, but what I think what you're saying is that that's not as safe as you think it is because there's no return on that investment. That's one mistake that people can make. Is that right? Especially when we're in an interest rate environment that is historically low. So, I yeah. mean, you're, you're running the risk of inflation eating up those funds, and you're running the risk of not having anything grow or appreciate because it hasn't been invested wisely. So that's one risk. On the other side of that spectrum is the possibility of playing a little fast and loose with the money. Well, I've got a lot, so I can afford to gamble some, so I'm going to do some day trading or, or, or I mean, that could show up in a lot of other ways. I'm going to invest in my friend's business. You know, I'm going to, there are a lot of ways in which that that could show up. So you're a little too, instead of being risk averse and then risking losing your money because you haven't done anything to help it grow and keep up with your expenses and inflation. But on the other end, you could be too risky putting the money at risk and, and potentially losing it all because of the just making a, a, some dumb investments. Yep, yes. and speculation will eat that up faster than anything else. And I would add, you know, one last little piece to this, which is, you know, there is the sudden money syndrome, right, that we read about often as financial planners where people come into large sums of money. And I have experienced this over time where many times couples haven't communicated well over money, and that's just one reason they're probably going through a divorce, and there's the surprise factor of how much they've actually accumulated or accrued 
during the marriage. And now all of a sudden there's this wealth and it's sort of like, wow, now I can support my friends and family or I can make those investments in people's businesses, as you suggested, or, you know, let me, let me invest in cannabis or, you know, whatever it can be because it's there and it looks so big on paper. And so what should people do? I mean, I mean, I think that if people are not used in the situation that you describe, oh my gosh, I'm going to be worth on the other side of this divorce an amount of money that seems like a lot of money. How should people go about learning about what, what to do with it, finding a trustworthy investment advisor who isn't, I mean, I've, I have worked with people. I can remember a case years ago that I had where one of the spouses had inherited some money and it wasn't doing very well, but the investment advisor was driving a Bentley. And they had all kinds of investments <laughs> in the appraisal, in the, in the portfolio that I thought were terrible investments. And I mean, I'm no investment advisor, but I yes. do know a little something about it. And yeah. you know, he, he had all of these annuities and, you know, things like that that just looked like they were benefiting the advisor and not the client. So, you know, those are, I'm sure, and everybody has a story like that, that they've heard of someone who's gotten screwed by their, by somebody purporting to be helpful. So how can somebody help find a reliable investment advisor who's going to listen to them and do what's in their best interest? So I think, you know, that's such an excellent point. And and one of the issues in all of this is the lack of financial literacy or experience in working with qualified professionals. So, I mean, there are many resources out there. The first and foremost would be, you know, the Certified Financial Planner Board, the CFPs, which is a designation that's the highest in personal financial planning, and you can search for fee-only planners. It doesn't mean that a planner who charges commissions isn't trustworthy. It simply means that they're selling products. I don't sell any products. I work on an hourly basis, and so really and truly, I'm also a registered investment advisor, meaning I have a fiduciary standard to uphold, which is putting my client's interests first and foremost, and that's it. I don't have any other agenda. So one of the other suggestions I would make, though, is when you're going through this divorce, is to build a professional team as you go through this divorce. And when I'm working with clients as their financial divorce experts, I'm providing them with a roadmap so that they have the first one, two, three steps that they know about the minute they hit, you know, the finish line, so to speak. And if they need referrals, they need referrals and happy to do that. If they stay with me and I'm not a collaborative neutral, that's great too because they've built the trust in what you are presenting and advocating and making clear to them in terms of what is appropriate as financial wealth management. And that's the ticket, is that you're managing wealth for a lifetime and for a legacy for many people as well. And so for people who are in that situation, I think it's actually great to have the financial advisor involved in the divorce process itself because, for one thing, you really get to know somebody pretty well as a professional when you're going through that and you really know where it's coming from and what's really important to the client and somebody who doesn't know a lot about money and doesn't have a lot of wealth experience can really get some really good guidance about negotiating the settlement with the help of a, of a financial advisor. So I think that's one thing that is really useful. And Lily, you know, another thing I think that you made reference to earlier is home, right? So many people, and I think particularly women, want to hold on to the home as an asset. And that can be a really poor financial decision. And so talk a little bit about that and how people should think about their house. 
Okay, perfect. So, you know, a house is both a financial asset and it's absolutely an emotional asset. And you have to navigate very carefully the weight of those factors and and help a person understand that the choices that lie before them, and there are easy choices, that they all have pros and cons to them. So when I'm talking about supporting a house and the and the expenses that go with a house, because we all know a house is a money pit, right? It eats money. It doesn't give you money. The choices have to be not only compared against what resources a person has, but also really what they aspire to in the future. I mean, sometimes it's a question of timing, whether they stay, sell, or hold on to a house for a few more years. Many times individuals want that homestead because they are just sending off kids to college and they feel like the transition is too abrupt. If they move at the same time a child goes off to college and doesn't have a place to come back to that's familiar, you know, in the first years. So the real emphasis is not only to make sure whether a person can financially afford it and how they can prioritize their resources if they are just barely affording it, but also to present the timeline and then to really weave and walk through that, you know, balance beam, so to speak, between the emotions and the financial piece of it. That's often not so hard. I think more and more people are beginning to realize that the house isn't the be-all, end-all, and more people are beginning to realize that why should it be eating up 80% of my budget? I think that's really useful information. And, you know, sometimes people think, well, real estate is always a good investment, but that's not always actually true. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I think that is going to be a volatile statement given the pandemic at the moment. But some places have not appreciated it at all. And then, of course, you and I are in these neighborhoods that have just gone through the roof because people are desperate to get out of the city. It is a question of understanding the risk factors of how you tie up your money because your money is tied up in a home and it will cost you in the future. No question about it. You're listening to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Catherine Miller and I'm talking today with Lily Vasiloff about high net worth divorces and some of the mistakes that people make when they're trying to negotiate those. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about a situation where a couple has lived primarily on one person's inherited assets and how confusing that is because when we get to the divorce, those inherited assets in New York are usually not divided. And there are ways in which that can be changed. But uh, how should people think about that situation, Lily, in, in terms of whether or not you know marital versus separate property, what that is and and what the impact of that is? Now, this is a state-by-state property law and divorce law. So in New York, there is such a thing as both separate property and um, marital property. In Connecticut, there is no such specific thing called separate property. But separate property is basically everything acquired or earned and invested prior to a marriage. And any gift or bequest or inheritance received during the marriage that is kept entirely separate and pristine. Marital property is everything earned or accumulated during a marriage. So if they are living off an inheritance and the inheritance had been separate and existed before the marriage, the question is anything that's generated from that pool of money, is it is it then commingled and addressed and focused on marital living expenses? Is it kept in separate accounts and only addressing certain kinds of expenses? Are there prenups? Are there trusts that specifically designate how the funds will be allocated and distributed? 
Again, this is a deep dive, and it becomes more complicated with high net worth forces because of the size of funds. And again, if they are coming from a separate source, and how fair is that from a married couple's point of view for the non-person or the non-spouse of the inheritance to say, wow, that means not only is the principal not available to me because it's separate, but now you're telling me that I have a risk that I'm not going to benefit from the stream of income that supported us over our, you know, let's pretend it's a long-term marriage, and now I have what to look forward to, right? Mm-hmm. So exactly. from both from both you and I, this is, you know, this is a blend of art and science. You have to really get to the facts of every case, which are going to be unique, and dig into all of the issues that may include evaluating what the trust document says, evaluating how, you know, the cash flow has been generated from inherited um, money, et cetera. So it's not a black and white answer. Separate property and marital property could be a black and white answer, but then there are the nuances of how it's been applied and used through the marriage. And it's a very complicated analysis, and it's way more than uh, we really, I think, has been was to get into in, in this show. Uh, but that, I think, really does create a lot of challenges when people get divorced when they've been living primarily or substantially on one person's separate property and separate income and, and how to handle that situation because that's a very unpleasant wake-up call for the other spouse right. and, and what ha- and, and even maybe for the, for the one, the moneyed spouse because it's not always as clear-cut as he or she might hope that it was. Correct. And, and whereas I think trusts used to be almost inviolate in the sense that, you know, they were what they were, now, you know, many states are looking to decanting trust for the express purposes of undoing asset protection and making it available to divorcing spouses. So there's a lot that changes in the law. There's a lot that changes in the financial aspects of this. And as I said, you and I have to dig deep into these cases to really understand the whole intent of what happens and the availability of, or the availability and accessibility of what lies ahead for these people. Absolutely. I'm Catherine Miller, and you're listening to Divorce Dialogues. We're here on WVOX 1460 on every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30, and we're also available as a podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as on the podcast website, divorcedialogues.com. And I'm talking today with Lily Vasilov about high net worth divorces. And Lily, if anyone has any questions for you or wants to contact you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, thank you. Okay, my website is wealthprotectionmanagement.com. My phone number is 203-393-7200. And I work with clients and professionals before, during, and after divorce across the country. And one of the specialties that I have is working in these high net worth divorces that have such unique case facts and special factors that really impact every negotiation. That's great. And, you know, a lot of times people in high net worth situations own businesses. Sometimes they're yeah. professional practices. Sometimes they're more involved businesses, startups. You know, I love to use the example of, like, you know, the mom and pop candy store, you know, as an example. Yeah. And those businesses have a value. So how how is that how is a value come to when the when the business isn't for sale, and particularly when it seems like it's just me? You know, hey, it's just me. It's just me, the dentist, <laughs> me, the doctor, me, the lawyer. How how is that factored into the divorce? Well, each 
business may or may not need a formal appraisal. And there are business valuation experts that have the skills to assign a value to either an interest in ownership or an entire business for all different kinds of businesses and industries. I think what the challenge is today is that choosing a valuation date is difficult. Many businesses either prospered or completely suffered through the pandemic. And so these business valuations may need to be contingent upon a future date when it's revisited. It might be amended, revised, or it could be literally challenged down the road if you don't have alternate dates involved for when businesses might recover. And then, of course, we have all sorts of resources that were available to perhaps small business owners that may or may not even enter into support calculations or tax implications, such as the PPP loans, the, you know, EIDL loans. And, you know, were those business owners supposed to access those loans? What if they didn't and their businesses failed? How fair is that to the non-business spouse? If they access those funds and didn't share them, how fair is that? So, you know, you take you take each one of these steps to come to a, a set of factors that then guide you toward the ongoing value of a business in and of itself, the capacity and earnings of the person working and running this business, and then you have a value, and then the next step to that is how do you get that value out to give to the other spouse? <laughs> so again, this is an expertise that is supposed to always be addressed in a divorce because it's very important. Often either the house, retirement assets, or a small business are the anchor asset in the marital estate. So you can't overlook it and there's no way to avoid the value, but you do have to value it. Even when a person says, you know what, it's just me, and I'm just sitting at my desk, <laughs> there is a value to that. Right, even though that's really hard for, for someone to believe. Is that is that right? Well, often, but, I mean, the value may be the income stream in and of itself. That's an easy answer. You know, if it's just me and I'm I'm working and I'm just generating my own income and that's what it is, that's okay, and that's what it comes up with. But it could be that I have you know, consulting contracts that I have, a reputation, that I have a goodwill piece to this, you know, that's why it's important always to have a business valuation. And, and so what what are some other things that people facing a high net worth divorce should be worried about? And, we, you know, we only have a few minutes left, but what are some things that you would want people to think about and look out for as maybe red flags for problems? Okay. So I came up with my list of a couple of big mistakes generally that happen in high net worth divorces. One of them is failing to divide employer equity compensation properly. And by that I mean there are many different kinds of benefits that executives, owners, CEOs receive. And many times they seem too complicated to value or there's so many plans to read through or they really only are available if an employer and an executive stays on, you know, stays in the business. That is really 
not true. You can always value them. If they are unvested and have no current value, they may have a value in the future. It is important to have a financial expert read through all of those plans and identify all of those benefits that may save the person from personal expenses, such as they get financial planning, they get, you know, airline perks, they get whatever it is, and put a number to it so that you know what that person's benefiting from. And I think one of the biggest, you know, showcases of that was when uh, Jack Welch had apartments in New York and, and t- you know, season tickets to all the wonderful events he did, and it was never quantified. And so the spouse may or may not have ever benefited from it in the divorce. The other mistake that many people make is failing to look at tax strategies that were employed in the past, such as tax loss carryovers. Maybe there were losses on cap, you know, on, on investment. Maybe there were losses from other kinds of activities. Those losses can be used in the future to shelter future capital gains. And that saves money. And those need to be shared as well. All right, we have about 30 seconds. Is there one more you want to squeeze in there? I think the one more would be really identifying passive versus active appreciation on your separate property, and that requires tracing. So, you know, with those three big mistakes and the ones that we talked about in detail, I think, you know, if anyone needs help, please call me. Happy to give guidance on any one of those big mistakes I see frequently occurring in high net worth courses. Awesome. Willie Vasilev, thank you so much for being our guest on Divorce Dialogues. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure, too. Thank you, Catherine.